Let's turn together in God's Word now to the book of Esther. Let's turn together to Esther chapter 3 this evening and find our place in God's Word. Last time together we concluded chapter 2 and introduced and moved into the beginning of Esther chapter 3 and we're continuing our study in this wonderful, marvelous book that teaches us so much about the character, the nature, and the attributes of our sovereign God. Tonight as we look into the text, the title of the message is When the Heathen Plot in Vain. Esther chapter 3. Join me there in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 12 to lay the context. As a matter of fact, we'll read just all the way down through verse 15 to get it in our mind's eye. Short chapter here. Esther chapter 3. Now after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed, and they paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them. And they told, they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. In other words, it's, it's not fitting that they even live. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written, and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and young and women, in one day on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. 
Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. Now the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, and notice here, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. The Bible clearly teaches that God is constantly, as we've been highlighting, He's always at work, whether or not we see it or do not see it. The Scriptures teach us that God raises people up and He sets people down. The Scriptures clearly teach that God delights in elevating those that are really only He knows about, those that He has called and qualified and Over the course of his providence and time, he is put into place. The Bible clearly teaches that God is bringing these things about in accordance to his will. We we like to think of the great God, the great sovereign God that, that works miracles, and he does. But God uses means to perform the miracles. He uses people. He uses events. He uses means to bring about his intended purposes and ends. For example, Psalm 75, verse 6 reminds us, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. The scriptures are clear that God is the one who ultimately controls world events. As we look at the headlines today, we see what's taking place over in Israel and Gaza Strip, we see what's happening in the the front lines of of war, and it is concerning. There's no doubt about that, and we're not minimizing the horrible news that we're hearing and the bloodshed. We certainly weep with those who weep. We grieve about all of it, but church, just remember this. God is not on his throne shaking his hands wondering what on earth is he going to do now. He is fully working all things to his own counsel, in accordance to his own counsel. What we find here in the book of Esther is that God elevates and raises up the most unlikely of his servants, two of them, into positions of prominence and power. More about that in just a moment. Last time together, chapter 2, we saw a defeated king in King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, who comes home and he's defeated by the Greeks, and he's in a down place. So we see how his advisors have been counseling him and guiding him to pursue another queen. We looked at that extensively the last two times together. We saw a promoted orphan in Hadassah, or Esther. This little Jewish orphan girl who is the most unlikely of all young ladies to be the next queen of Persia. And then we also saw a prominent Jew in Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who serves as her father, her adoptive guardian. And we've been beholding how God has been raising up, as we just saw in Psalm, um, as mentioned in Psalm 75, verse 6. He exalts, he raises up, and he takes down. We've been seeing how God moves these two obscure Jewish man and woman into key positions of power. Mordecai in an official position at the king's gate or in the king's court, and Esther into the palace as queen. Now in our text this evening in chapter 3, we'll have a goal here to go through the whole chapter. We'll see how God's sovereign hand is working, putting his people into the right place at the right time, even when it doesn't 
feel like it. So notice with me, number one, we see the positioning for power. We, we introduced Haman last time together. In fact, if this was a fictional account, and it's not a fictional account, but if it was, we like to draw out in the fiction account who is the protagonist and who is the antagonist. Well, that's not only for fiction. In real life, there are protagonists and there are antagonists. And the antagonist of this historical account here in Esther is a villain. And this villain's name is Haman. Haman in the Old Testament scriptures is one of the most self-absorbed, one of the most wicked men that, that really comes upon the pages of scripture. And it's fitting because the man reigning over Persia himself is a wicked man in Xerxes. It just points out to us that wicked men tend to draw wicked men together. They often have a price. They can buy their way into prominence. They know how to flatter. They know how to do whatever it takes to get into those prominent positions of power, usually not deserving it whatsoever. What we find in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, we see and notice how Haman is promoted. Notice with me in the text, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamathadiah the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now last time together, I asked you guys if you could to buy that little booklet out in the Grace books called Hacking Agag to Pieces. Well, the good news is uh, it sold out. And then we went and found a backup box with a couple extra copies, and that one sold out. So I'm just curious, if you were able to buy that little booklet last week, how many of you guys did that? Raise your hand if you don't mind. Well, thank you for doing that. Now, here's the, here's the trick question next. How many of you guys were actually able to read it this past week? Anybody? Okay. Now, those are two different things. We get it. We have our to-do list. Let me encourage you to read that still. The reason we take time to highlight that is, is last week, we, last time we introduced his ancestry and why there is this unfolding drama of redemption here that's happening between the line of Mordecai and the line of Haman. Haman can trace he's a descendant of King Agag, who Saul was supposed to wipe out in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8 and 9. Mordecai traces his lineage all the way to King Saul. This is an ancient battle between King Saul and King Agag. You remember, we're not going to turn there, but 1 Samuel 15, 8 and 9 draws out for us the account where Samuel, the prophet, confronts Saul and says, Saul, you were to slay the Amalekites, the ancient enemy foe of Israel. And we looked at that. We went back into the history and looked at why the Amalekites and why Agag was the enemy of Israel. Why would God order his people to, to, that they destroy the Amalekites? that they remove them from the land. Well, it adds a lot of weight, it adds a lot of understanding as we take the time to trace that out, that Haman is a descendant, he's an Agagite, funny, hard word to say, he is of Agag. Haman is a descendant of Agag who hates the Jews. He's the antagonist here of our text. We find here he soon sets his sights on destroying not only Mordecai, but also the people of Mordecai, his ancestry. Secondly, we saw his advancement. Verses 1 and 2 bring to the forefront that Xerxes honors Haman, really unjustly, undeservingly. He elevates him and gives him a seat of honor. The text tells us, the Holy Spirit wants us to know, higher than any of the other nobles. Essentially, Haman is elevated to what is the prime minister's seat 
What we find here in this text as well is the, the personality of Haman shines through. He comes across as someone who is prideful, obnoxious, and very petty. Notice verse 2, the king orders others all around him. He orders them to bow down to Haman. I was reading one commentator this week who said, in the Far East, particularly in Persian culture, you didn't have to tell people to do this unless they didn't want to do this. It was normal to show respect and honor to your parents. So you can imagine Asian people in our understanding today, maybe we, inter, we see them interact and they'll, they'll have a slight curtsy or a slight bow and it's a respect to the elders. That was common in Far Eastern culture, particularly to elevated officials or designated officials, the king and his representatives. It was normal to bow. You didn't have to tell anyone to do this. So the fact that the king is enforcing it tells us that Haman is a, an obnoxious individual. His advancement is unjust and misdirected. Again, why is it misdirected? Well, if you remember at the end of chapter 2, who was it that saved the king's life? Who was it that overheard a plot between two eunuchs who had something in their crawl, plotting to assassinate King Xerxes? Well, it was Mordecai. And in that text, we see that it is recorded in the book of Chronicles, the Chronicles of the King, what Mordecai did, the fact that he spared the king's life. But there's no elevation, there's no reward, which would have been very common to see happen. We think of the example of Joseph in the book of Genesis who interprets the king's dream. What does the king do? He immediately elevates Joseph because of the wisdom, because of the action. He, in a sense of gratitude, the king elevates Joseph to a place of prominence. To show his gratitude. Well, Xerxes does nothing of the sort here in our text. In fact, verses 8 and 9 really hint and point to the fact that it seems as if Haman is full of resources. That he more than likely bought the position by offering the king money. Verses 8 and 9 reveal 10,000 talents of silver. And that's ultimately 300, notice here, 375 tons of of silver. Maybe wondered, I mean, who is Haman? Does he own the local, did he discover a cave that's full of silver that could be mine? He's got some kind of, he's plugged into some type of, of wealth source. So many scholars believe that he bought this position. And when you connect it back to chapter 2, how Xerxes comes home defeated from his battles, uh, his campaign, his failed campaign with Greece, that he's in great financial debt. So Haman coming to him with this wealth and this money is really a way that he bought his position. Well, with all really positions, with leadership, with advancements and promotions, there comes much responsibility with that. In other words, if you're a true leader, if you have a spot, if you have a place, your job is not simply to lord that. Your job is not to use that for your own gain. That's not what the Scriptures teach. To be a leader... To be over others is really a, really a great responsibility. So we can ask this question as we look at Haman's advancement. How is he going to use this power? What is his character like? Is he going to serve others? Is he going to be a servant? Is he going to steward resources wisely for not only the king, but for the kingdom? And the illustration and the point to all of this is absolutely not. In fact, Haman is a living illustration of the self-absorbed. Haman is a living illustration for pride. In fact, he's so corrupt and he's so wicked that the Jews and commentators regularly liken him in the Scriptures as a type of the Antichrist. 
his desire to wipe out God's people, particularly the Jews, his methods and the ways that he goes about doing his wickedness is really a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist that we hear about in the book of Revelation. So what kind of leader is he going to be? How is he going to use his power? Well, Proverbs 16, 18 gives us unlikely commentary on it, where it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. This verse is practically helpful, so immensely practically helpful to all of us in our just Christian living and our sanctification to be reminded that when we are filled up with pride, when we, when we think we've arrived in an area of the Christian life, we've, we've struggled, we've had journeys and trials, we've had some failures, and we've had some success, and we feel like we have the victory, we think, check, we can now move on from that. We've won the victory over that. Be careful. As Proverbs would tell us, 16 verse 18, pride goes before destruction, pride and a haughty spirit before a fall. Usually we're about, we're headed towards a fall when we are lifted up in confidence in our flesh and confidence in self. Well, Haman serves as a living illustration. I don't want to steal the thunder of the story. You'll see more to be continued how he illustrates this fall and this destruction. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? The wisdom writer asks. Well, there is more hope for a fool than him. One more. Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked in his proud countenance, notice here, does not seek God, but God is in none of his thoughts. Well, Haman is set up for failure. And every leader, we would just remind ourselves, any leader in a position of prominence, particularly the context here is politics, we think about those who have positions as public servants, what used to be the position of the public office, public servants for the greater good, unfortunately, in today's day and age, is no longer, that is no longer the case. By the way, a few weeks ago, I was preaching, the, I think, the first opening message, and we were talking about rulers and politics, and I'm glad I took the time to say, and I, that's why it reminded me of it, that not all of our elected officials are that way. We understand that, and we know that, and we took a, I took a moment, I can't remember what I said, but at the end of that message, one of our elected representatives was in the back, and just popping in, I had met him earlier that week, and he had told me he was going to come and, and, and come worship with us on one of our services. The problem was I didn't recognize him. And, uh, but thankfully, we took a moment to say, and we want to qualify that, that while that is generally indicative and true of politics and public servants in our land, I think we do need to obviously state the fact that not all of them are that way. And we need to pray for our leaders, and we do, and I'm grateful that our church does, and pray that God humbles them, that God regularly grabs their heart and reminds them of their responsibility and that what he's called them to and maybe they are some of those like Mordecai and Esther and others that God delights to put into places of prominence to make a difference for his glory and for his kingdom. He does. That's what scripture clearly teaches. So we see Haman and his advancement, his promotion. Then we see Mordecai introduced to us. And here Mordecai is no longer living in the closet in the sense of hiding his Jewish ethnicity or his connection to the Hebrew people. In verses 2 through 4, we find that Mordecai has some backbone. Mordecai is wise. He is he's sly. He's wise as a serpent. He's harmless as a dove. But now the time comes in his life that he can no longer be crafty. Now he needs to make a, a stand. In fact, we can be pretty certain that Haman's reputation preceded him, as we made mention that others were forced by the king to bow. 
But even when the king says, you must bow, there is one man who says, I will not bow. I don't care who says it, whether it's King Xerxes or Haman or anyone else. And that man is Mordecai. Mordecai refused to give respect where respect, notice here, was not due. Verse 2, and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate, this is where Mordecai was, remember, end of chapter 2, this is where he is positioned, this is where he is established. So he's there in the king's gate. All the servants, though, bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So then the king's servants who were within the gate asked or said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey? Why do you transgress the king's command? Now, if you have the... I'm not going to ask you to underline that, but I just want to take note of that. This is not necessarily what we would underline, unless you want to. That phrase, though, why do you transgress the king's command? They really don't know how ironic what they're saying. Which king? This king or that king? Why do you transgress the king's command? Listen, the Jewish people truly understand there's no one there to call king, lord, and God except for the man that God puts there on the throne, like King David and others. That is very clear that God has positioned that man as a designated representative to rule over his people. Spiritually, there is no man, though, that God's people are to pay homage to or to worship, moving beyond the bounds of, say, simple respect. We're not to worship any earthly creature, period. And this is what Mordecai refuses to do. It's beyond a show of respect. It's a sign of worship, paying homage. So Mordecai here exemplifies for us really what is civil disobedience. There comes a time in Mordecai's life, in his faith and in his practice, to where he can obey. He's in the king's gate doing his daily duty, serving in a civic way, doing whatever it is the king has asked and positioned him to do within his public service, until the day comes that he can't do it. He will not, cannot bow. And friends, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. If you're still in the workforce today, if you're still involved in the, in the public square, as we call it, life and practice and interacting with others in, in a very prominent way, whether it's your job or volunteer opportunities, or if you're a parent or grandparent, do not be deceived. If you think you can be protected from a point to where you say, um, or, or, you know, where you're not going to have to have this awkward decision of either standing for that king or this king. Again, notice that phrase where they asked him, why do you transgress the king's command? Now, they're referring to Xerxes, but Mordecai is living for a greater king. He has a fear that's greater than King Xerxes, and that is Yahweh. Now, to be honest here, to be absolutely transparent, the text here does not reveal to us Mordecai's motive, but we're starting to see Mordecai's Jewish heritage coming into play. We know that he knows the law of God. If he's an Old Testament Jew, he, he knows God's law. He's been trained and raised up in these things. We don't know here if God is calling him back to himself, but what we're starting to see is where there's no mention of Mordecai's faithfulness to Yahweh or God. Remember, the book of Esther does not explicitly mention God, so it's not going to articulate for us Mordecai's faith. That's not the aim of the book per se. So we can't know for sure his true motive, but it's not hard to recognize and know that it must be out of obedience to God's law. Where the Ten Commandments are clear that we're to worship Him, God, the true and living God, alone. Exodus 20, verse 5, no doubt Mordecai knew it. 
You shall not bow down to them, false gods or idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Mordecai may have believed that bowing down to Haman would transgress this command. This was a line that he could not cross. It's clear that Haman is an, ancient, is an enemy of Israel. His lineage is that of the ancient enemy of Israel. It could also have been just simply patriotism and loyalty to the Jews that kept Mordecai from bowing. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, Mordecai's controversy with Haman was not a, a personal quarrel with a proud and difficult man. It was Mordecai's declaration that he was on God's side in the national struggle between the Jews and the Amalekites. In fact, so let's just hit pause here. Friends, again, I just want to remind you that there's going to become points. We, we live in 2023. Um, I was listening to a dear friend of our families who's faithfully for many years um, served in the public square and just simply representing churches free of charge, pastors, churches who face lawsuits for simply doing what the church does, evangelism, sharing their faith, uh, being on the job and, and being told you can't pray here, you can't bring your Bible here, all those types of things. And this man has faithfully represented the church in those ways. And um, he said when he started out a long time ago, I don't know when it was, but he just said he thought it would be a part-time hobby. Like he, he had studied to go into law and to faithfully serve as a lawyer. But um, he just began to see the, the possible need to help people, and he wanted to help the church, and he wanted to help the cause of Christ. And so one day out of the blue, a pastor calls him and says, I'm facing a lawsuit. I'm trying to start a school, and I'm being sued for this. And so it was the first case that he had, and he said, what I thought would just become a minor thing, a part-time thing, that, uh, and, he, and, and he was telling this as a testimony of God's grace. He's never charged a dime for representing the church or God's people or pastors or full-time Christian workers in lawsuits that they face in these particular things. But he was being honest, honest enough to say, I didn't think it would be anything major. He said, I never thought I would live in a land. This was America. This was not something that we were going to have to really be too worried about. And he said, it, it has become my lifetime ministry. This has become literally all I do. I thought that was interesting. The perspective of how our nation has changed and how our culture has changed. Christians today are pressured to bow and to conform, to be canceled. Financial pressures are applied. You'll lose your bonus or you'll lose your job. The threat of job loss. The pressure of friends and the pressure of acquaintances. The pressure of just get in line. It's immense and it's real. It's, it's there. So church, I just want to hit pause and just encourage you. Just like we see Mordecai taking a stand, the, Mordecai is not the theme of the book, the text, or the passage, but it is a point. Here we see him standing. Here we see him not bowing to the public pressures of the day. Let me remind you what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, that it has been appointed to us as the church, that we've not only been granted the gift of salvation, but it has been appointed to us to suffer for Christ's sake. Now somehow we forget that. We, we need to remind ourselves of that on a daily basis because, so that when it happens, we're not train wrecked. We, we don't feel like we're, we're being blindsided by like a, like a freight train. And we need to remind ourselves in that moment when it happens that this is part of God's gift to his people. Now you say, wait a second. Let me just remind all of you, God has a people. 
just all over the earth. Now, we're not getting into the whole conversation of Israel and Jews and, and Christians or whatever. Hear me when I say born-again people all over the earth in the Middle East, in Palestine, in Israel, there are people who profess the name of Christ. In Birmingham, Alabama, where I was born and raised, I had friends who were Lebanese Christians, Jordanian Christians, Jewish Christians, Palestinian Christians. And it was always interesting that they were all united in Christ, but the politics side was very real. They constantly had to learn how to mortify and put those things to the side and be united in Christ. And here's what I want to say. Listen, all over the world are God's people who are having to suffer for their faith right now. It means something for them. So here we are in America, and we don't desire it. We're not asking for it. But our job, my job, is to prepare us for it. And when it happens, we're not to start lamenting the, where is God? What has happened? We need to recognize that today God has been gracious and kind, that our life has been as good as it's been. He's been so kind to us. What do we have to show for it? That's what we want to ask ourselves. We're going to give account to the Lord. We say, Lord, uh, you, didn't, you, didn't, you did not allow my family to be massacred in church this morning. Thank you. How can I live faithfully for you tomorrow morning at work? All right, so that, that, we, we, we're not complaining that we're not going through it, but at the same time, all over the world today, there are born-again Christians who are the bride of Christ, who are, their blood is being shed. Guns are being held to people's heads saying, if you don't renounce Christ, we'll kill your wife in front of you, and they, and they do exactly that. A choice must be made. Now, I know that's graphic, I know that's extreme, but friends, that, that's where it's at. So you compare that to with, listen, just get in line, or we may have to reassign you somewhere else. Be reassigned somewhere else. What a joy it is to suffer. What a joy it will be to suffer for the name of Christ. I promise you, I'm not just saying that. That's what the early church said. They counted it an honor to say, Lord, thank you that we get to share in your sufferings. Thank you that we get to taste of the sufferings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, enough of that. So what was Mordecai's crime? That he committed against Haman. There, there is no crime other than he violated the king, the earthly king's decree. He quietly refuses to bow. Now, his quiet refusal was a bold declaration that he was faithful to the people of God, to Yahweh. We would assume that we would draw from his obedience at this point in the text. In fact, when people know that you have a conviction about something because you are a Christian, they may be watching you to see if you will hold on to that conviction, if you will maintain that integrity to hold your convictions not just once, but as the pressure grows. And it's clear here that the pressure begins to grow against Mordecai as questions begin to be asked for him. Haman's anger towards Mordecai reveals his hatred not only for Mordecai, but for the Jewish people. We call this anti-Semitism. It's a hatred of the Jews. When my children this afternoon asked me, they've been studying in Genesis um, chapter 12. We'll reference here if we have time here in just a moment. One of my children, hearing the news and hearing conversations, said, Daddy, why don't the, what's going on? What, what's, what's the conflict in the Middle East about? And that was our lunch conversation today. Well, let me tell you. Let's go back to Abraham. Let's talk about Isaac. And let's talk about Ishmael. And so it was good to try to explain the conflict the best we could in some basic terms. Antisemitism is what is fueling that hatred of the Jews in the Middle East even at this very moment. 
So number one, the positioning for power by Haman. Secondly, we see the plot introduced to us, verses 5 and 6. The plot of Haman, furious at Mordecai, he begins to devise this arrogant plot to really eradicate, to annihilate the people of God. Haman here will serve as not only a type of the Antichrist, but a forerunner of of Hitler and many others who've hated the Jews and attempted to try to destroy them in the scene of history. Notice when we verse 5, the plot begins to be unveiled. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, he was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. One commentator says this, Haman's hatred for Mordecai soon percolated and developed into a hatred for the whole Jewish race. Haman could have reported Mordecai's crimes directly to the king, and the king could have imprisoned Mordecai or perhaps had him executed. But that would not have satisfied Haman's lust for bloodshed and revenge. Notice Haman's proposal that he gives to us in the text. He, he wastes no time planning to destroy and to annihilate the Jews. And this is where Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 comes into play. As we think about those who would desire to kill God's people, particularly Israel. Remember God's covenant promise to Abraham. Kids in Sunday school, you can listen up at this point. This might sound familiar to you. God told Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we have Haman introduced to us in the text as one of those who is cursed by God. We will see he is fully cursed by God. His destruction is imminent because of his actions against Mordecai and the Jewish people. Notice verse 7 gives us insight into Haman's spiritual condition. We've already talked about his pride and his self-absorbedness. Verse 7 tells us that Haman used pur, uh, cast lots. This is a system of casting lots that is pagan. The Persian religious system of the day was very superstitious, particularly stressing fate and chance. From the first month of Nisan, which is April through May, to the twelfth month of Adar, which is February through March, lots were cast which were called pur, P-U-R. Some commentators speculate that what Haman is doing here is he's casting the pur and he's waiting on demons, the spiritual realm, to guide and to direct and to set the date of the destruction. He is consumed. Persians were known to be using witchcraft, studying the natural realm, flights of birds, the shapes of livers of slain animals, astrology. They were known to consult demons particularly, or the spirit realm particularly, when wanting to make major decisions or wartime decisions. And so by the mention of verse 7, what is taking place here, it's believed that some say that's what Haman is doing here. As the arch enemy of God, we know that Satan would love to destroy. Think about the covenant promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. From the seed of the woman would come a Messiah. Let's just zoom out here for a second. This is more than Haman. 
And this is more than Mordecai. This is more than Haman and Mordecai and Agag and Saul. As fascinating as that is, is, what's going on here? Friends, this goes back to the very beginning. And this goes back to the pronouncement and the curse that was given to Lucifer, to Satan, who had fallen and rebelled against God, who enticed Adam and Eve to sin. And that gospel, proto-evangelium promise was given, Genesis 3.15, to Adam and Eve, that, that the promise of the gospel that Satan was not looking for or anticipating. Satan causing Adam and Eve to sin, knowing that God said, In the day that you shall eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. But what Satan was not made aware of until God announced it was grace, the promise of the gospel. And Satan had no idea about grace. This was an attribute of God that Satan was not aware of or privy to. Ever since that time, what has Satan been up to? You know what he's been up to. He's been trying to wipe God's people off the face of the earth. Particularly, he heard the promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He knows that. He, he can hear. He sees what God is doing. He's constantly at work. He's waging warfare, not only against the church, but particularly at this era, this time, he is seeking to keep that coming Messiah, that coming God-man, from ever coming by wiping them off the face of the earth. So if you're like, come on, Legrand, we're talking about demon worship here, we're like casting, I, I thought God's people cast lots. Oh, they do. But, but here in the context, it would not be a stretch of the imagination based upon what we know about the Persians and the practices that they, they did, that Haman is seeking divine counsel from the, the slain, fallen spirit realm, the demons, and Satan himself. That's what we can possibly gather. Yes, it's true that the casting of lots was something that the Jews did. But when the Jews did it, they did it as a measure of test in God. Uh, it was very clear who they were asking for direction. For example, Leviticus 16 verse 8 tells us that Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And they were trusting that the very lot that the Lord would determine that he would guide and show them his purposes, his will through that process. In fact, we can fast forward all the way to the New Testament and see that some of the, the, the disciples that replaced Judas, how, how was that determined? They sought the Lord, they prayed, and they what? Cast lots, trusting that the providence of God, as he would guide the process, would lead them to the one that he wanted to replace Judas. There is a difference, there was a difference, in who they were seeking to give wisdom and guidance to the process. So Haman wasn't using the lots in the same way that the Israelites would have, but God overruled in his superstitious casting of lots. Notice here, to extend the date to almost a year away. Again, we see God's hand in every aspect and in every part of this book. In fact, it's humorous to think that Haman said, I got this. I'm crafty. I've got this whole thing under control. But what was true is, Actually, God's got this. He's mistaken. So as he comes, verse 8, as we get ready to round down our study for tonight, he comes and approaches the king in a very deceitful way. Verse 8 really reveals to us his heart of deceit, his craftiness, his duplicity, you could say. Verse 8, Haman then comes to King Ahasuerus. And by the way, Haman has no idea that Esther is a Jew this point. Remember, Mordecai has shepherded her and guided her. Esther, do not tell anyone that you are a Jew. So Haman now comes to King Xerxes and he says, now there is a 
there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Know how, notice how he's painting this picture. They don't respect you, king. They don't, they don't obey your your. They don't obey your laws, O king. He's stroking the ego. He's, he's knowing how to, he knows how to talk to Xerxes. And he says their laws are actually different from all the other peoples. And they do not keep the king's laws. You can just imagine how he's telling Xerxes this. Therefore, O Xerxes, such a people, it is not fitting that they should be allowed to remain in your most wonderful realm. So without naming the Jews explicitly, Haman coerces and convinces the king that the people that he would desire to wipe out, that the king should authorize it. Verse 9, notice there, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they should be destroyed. And I, even I, will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into, into the king's treasuries. If the king wasn't listening... Up until this point, commentators say he was now at this point. As a cash-strapped king, Haman knew that Xerxes was easily persuaded by money in general. But if he was cash-strapped as a result of his failed Grecian campaign, that he would easily have assented to this because of the amount of money that some say was up to two-thirds of part of the budget uh, that the king had in place. It was a, quite a large sum of money. And so that the king would quickly sign this into law. Notice verse 10. We quickly see that this famous law of the Medes and the Persians is enacted. Verse 10 says, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Whoever these people are, you do with them as seems good to you. Well, we're going to hit pause right there. We're going to pick up next time and notice this is not the first time, and this will not be the last time in history where deceitful uh, men of the State Department come and get the king to sign a law of the Medes and the Persians uh, into official decree and how God is able to save his servants. He's able to protect his men and his women, as we'll see here in Esther, that he has in place, and yet spare and save and protect his people. Again, the book of Esther is different than Matthew. We get that. There's lots to cover, and, and yet it's Old Testament's completely different. But church, do not miss the glorious sovereign hand of God in it all. And I just want you to know, the, same, the God of Esther is the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. And we can trust in Him. And our faith is strengthened as we consider, as we think, this God is my God and your God. This God of Esther and of Ruth that we've studied in the past, a couple of Sunday studies, this God is at work even today. You can trust Him. And whatever the difficult situation is that you're going through right now or that is on your horizon or that you're praying through, just know this, God has people in place. He's working at this end of the line and He's working at that end of the line. And He delights to show Himself faithful to His people when we least Likely expect, or when we least expect it, but usually when we most need it. And we say amen and amen to his faithfulness to us. He's faithful, amen? God is faithful. Next Sunday morning, we're singing that song out of the Psalms. Uh, God is faithful, and uh, he is. It's a testimony of his people that we declare and give him the glory and praise for it.
Well, church, thank you for being faithful tonight. Let's gather with one another. Let me pray for us just before we dismiss. It's been a wonderful day in the, in the house of the Lord. Let's encourage one another. Let's strengthen one another. Let's take a moment to pray if we can in any way that we can uh, send each other off into a wonderful start. Re- let me just remind you, tomorrow is not the first day of the week. Today is the first day of the week, and what a great first day it's been. Amen? Monday, as often we will say from time to time, Monday is not the month. The case of the Mondays uh, may be real, but for the Christian, it should be different if you've been in the house of the Lord on the Lord's Day. And what I mean by that is, is hopefully you've been strengthened, hopefully you've been encouraged, hopefully you've had opportunities for ministry, and so that prepares us for the second day of the week, which is the first day, quote-unquote, for everybody else. And I don't say that degradingly or mocking down. I'm just trying to strengthen us and encourage us to say, may the Lord help our light to shine as, he, as we go into the week that he has purposed for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us, your bride, your people. And Father, you are the God of, of the church. You are the God of your people today. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We know that you're at work. We know that you're working, even, Lord, when it seems as if you are not. Lord, I don't know all the details of what some of our members are going to be facing tomorrow. There's some surprises that some of our people will be facing that they have no idea that's waiting for them. Um, We know that your word clearly says that sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. We're not to be anxious or to be fearful or to worry about tomorrow, but just to trust you, to rest in you. So I pray that our people would do that. I pray, Lord, that other of our people who are not carrying that same burden of weight would seek to be an encouragement to those who are sick and could not be with us today. Pray that you would use us to be your hands and feet, the body of Christ that ministers. And we'll trust that you'll do that good work that you've completed, that, that you've begun in us, that you will complete it until the day. Father, we love you and thank you for your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you.